0: Throughout history and up to modern times, we invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds and allow us to enlighten, educate and explore the real reasons why black African-Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, you know, Courtney, today we're going to be talking about Black business empires, both past and present. And when I mean past, I really mean past. Okay, so how far back in the past are we going to
1: take our listeners in, Carol?
0: Oh boy, all the way back to the 6th century, Courtney, and all the way back to the African continent. Um Let's start with the Ghana Empire. They flourished in West Africa from at least the sixth to the 13th century. Now this empire is not connected geographically to the modern state of Ghana. It was located in the Western Sudan-Savanna region, which is now modern Southern Mauritania and Mali. And it's sandwiched between the Sahara Desert to the North and the rainforest in the south. Now, the Ghana empire in particular grew rich from the Trans-Sahara trade, and it had control over the three major gold fields in the south of them. Actually, it was referred to by traders as, quote, the land of gold. And the kings of Ghana were sometimes called the lords of the gold, since the king of Ghana had a monopoly on all gold nuggets that were found in the mines.
1: Well, clearly, the Guyana kings knew a bit more about running businesses since it looks like they controlled trading in gold for a very long time.
0: They did indeed. They did indeed. They shrewdly kept trading interests until another West African trading empire arose during the 13th and 17th century. Now, this was the great Mali Empire. Now, it was established by King Sunjata Keta, and like Ghana, It was in the middle of trade routes where traders had to pay tribute and taxes to that empire. Now, its abundance of gold dust and salt deposits helped to expand the empire's commercial assets for over four centuries. Now, Mali included the great city of Timbuktu, which became known as an important center of knowledge where scholars from around the world came to study at its major universities and renowned library.
1: So often when we hear the word Timbuktu, it's in a derogatory way, like we're going from here to Timbuktu. But that city was no remote outpost. Obviously, it was the heart of a civilization, learning and learning, even though some of us us historians would have us believe otherwise.
0: That's exactly why we do these podcasts, Courtney, hiding the history of these empires as part of the systemic racism associated with education or actually lack of education. Now, I want to talk about one more empire that was the Songhai Empire, and that was the largest and last of the three major pre-colonial empires that emerged in West Africa. From its capital at Gao on the Niger River, Songhai expanded in all directions until it stretched from the Atlantic Ocean, modern Senegal and Gambia, and on to what is now northwestern Nigeria and central Niger. Again, the city of Timbuktu played in, into this. Timbuktu and another. Uh, city called Jenne uh, Gen- Gen- were the other major cultural and commercial centers of that empire. Now, with its capital at Gao and managing to control, again, that trans-Saharan trade through such centers at Timbuktu and Jenne, Gen- the Songhai Empire prospered throughout the 16th century.
1: So it looks like Blacks in America are descended from business and trading empires in Africa.
0: Indeed, they are. For example, some of those descendants included a few unsung business geniuses uh, that came well after those those empires in Ghana and Mali and so on. Uh, For example, Robert Gordon was an enslaved man who purchased his freedom moved to Cincinnati, and he bought a coal yard and ran it so successfully that he was able to uh, uh, overcome attempts by his competitors to drive him out of business. Another unsung business hero is Lewis Temple, also a formerly enslaved man from Virginia. He worked as a blacksmith and used his skills to invent several products, including an improved iron harpoon for the whaling industry.
1: Well, apparently, Aunt Carol, that spirit of Black entrepreneurship and business acumen was strong in America, even among the newly freed enslaved
0: people. Yes, it was and still is, my dear niece. For instance, to support that entrepreneurial spirit, in 1900, Booker T. Washington founded the National Negro Business League. Now, it was since renamed the National Business League in 1966 the league through 600 ca- chapters all across the united states supported black business entrepreneurs and helped them start and grow their businesses now From about 1900 to 1930, this was considered the golden age of Black-owned businesses in America, you know, because Jim Crow laws forced African-Americans to form more insulated communities separated from whites, in other words, segregated. It led to a boom in entrepreneurship. And all across the country, in urban areas where the majority of Black people live, small businesses were popping up at record speed.
1: Now, a good example of one of those prosperous areas was a place we covered in one of our podcasts not so long ago. It was booming with businesses, the 40 square block area of Greenwood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. But sadly, what happened in Tulsa happened many other places. But what we talked about was the Tulsa massacre of 1921.
0: Yep. Yep. Courtney, that's a good example. And Uh, Many of those thriving business areas were, again, people directly descended from Africa and then enslaved Africans who built businesses, and um, they were basically empire builders to some extent. And I understand you have a story about a largely unknown man who built a business empire in America despite the odds. You're right. Now, for many
1: people, the name Thomas Downing may not ring a bell. But if you lived in New York in the eighteen hundreds and early 1900s, you would not only have known his name, you would probably have called him the Oyster King. Now, back in those days, oysters were the street food and bar food of choice for New Yorkers. They were sold on the street, much like hot dogs are today. And there were places called Oyster Cellars or Oyster Dives. And yes, that is where we get the name Dive Bar from because you had to dive down into those basement steps to get. Get into those restaurants. Now, the thing about these dive bars and oyster cellars were they weren't the most respectable place to eat. Um, men were allowed there, but it had a little shady, rep, you know, reputation. Now, these cellars were distinguished by the red lanterns that hung above the cellar stairs where you dive down to your oyster dive. And the only women that were welcomed in these establishments were sex workers. Now, men sat at communal tables and shared oysters and drinks. Um, but did you know, and many people probably don't know, that a lot of these oyster cellars were run by African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Now, the most famous of these proprietors is who we're going to talk about today, and that is Thomas Downing, who at the time of his death was one of the wealthiest men in New York City. But let's start at his beginning. Now, Thomas was born in oyster country, and that's none other than the Chesapeake Bay Area of Eastern Virginia on the shore around 1791. Now, his parents were both enslaved, and they were owned by a sea captain by the name of John Downing. But see, John Downing set them free because he realized there was no way that he could be a devout Christian, and he was of the Methodist denomination, but he there was no way he believed that he could be a devout Christian and own other human beings. So, shout out to Captain Downing for realizing that.
0: Mm -hmm. Here's, now- here, captain here here <laughs>
1: Now, on top of that, Captain Downing created a Methodist meeting house and Thomas's parents who had adopted the last name Downing out of gratitude, you know, for him letting them be free. Like, you can't, everybody's free, but you know what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) Now, he, they became the paid caretakers of the property, which allowed them to buy land and provide for their family also. And they had a side business of selling a variety of shoreline animals Like terrapins and clams and oysters. Now, Thomas and his siblings played and were educated with their wealthy neighbors. And they were also educated alongside these white children, one of whom would be Henry A. Wise, who would become the governor of Virginia during the Civil War. So, that was his classmate, that was one of his peers. Now, in his early 20s, Thomas took up arms and joined the United States Army during the War of 1812, and he followed followed that up with moving to Philadelphia at the end of the war and getting married. Now, at the end of the war in Philadelphia, he became an oysterman and a valet, and that's where he met his wife, Rebecca West, and he opened his first oyster place. Now, he moved on from Philadelphia and became a registered oysterman in 1820 in New York City, and he lived on Staten Island in a thriving community of free Black people, and both were born free and formerly enslaved. And at this time, many of, actually the majority of, oystermen in New York City were of African descent, so that was a viable job back then. Now, Thomas began in New York by just raking and tonguing for oysters and selling them on the street. But because oysters were so plentiful And so cheap there was Really no money in just selling them Hand to hand on the street The money was in having your own Oyster basement or your own Oyster dive why Because you could sell Alcohol there
0: oh, The demon <laughs> alcohol
1: <laughs> now, And being the businessman That Thomas was he knew That his oyster basement had to be Different from the hundreds of other Establishments in the city so what was so different about his? Well, like most uh, business gurus will tell you, location, location, location. The Thomas Downing Oyster House opened in 1825 at 5 Broad Street. And that it was a basement indeed, but it was very upscale. Now, this fantastic location was a few box, blocks away from Five Points, which was a multicultural neighborhood but it was also majority african-american but it all types of cultures lived there and it was also where there were a lot of oyster dives but thomas understood that his oyster dive would be different because it'd be in the heart of the business district as well okay, And so no- he
0: had a clever business uh sense his whole idea was not just to have a dive it was a dive plus
1: it's a die plus and it gets even better because his decor was not the regular communal tables, sketchy red lights, you know, untoward people walking around. It was decorated to perfection with damask curtains, gilded mirrors, a sparkling chandelier, and he further innovated by welcoming wives and families, as long as they were accompanied by their husbands. Now, according to Mark Kurlansky in his book, The Big Oyster, Downing's place was a place for businessmen who preferred to Discussing their affairs rather than having them. So sex workers really were not welcomed in this location. So women and children, like I said, with a chaperone, of course, were welcome to come in and they just didn't have fresh oysters. They had cooked options as well. And Thomas made sure to also have great relationships with the skiff captains who he purchased oysters from. See, what Thomas would do would go out early in the morning in his own rowboat and get out to the oyster skiffs and pay premium price for the best oysters on each boat because he was known for having the freshest oysters. But then he would meet the skiff captains back at the docks where the other oyster purveyors would be and waiting to bid on the oysters. And he he would place bids not with the intention of buying them because he had already bought what he needed for the day, but with the intention of raising the prices. Because seeing Thomas Downing, everybody wanted those types of oysters, so they're definitely going to try to outbid and get what they think are the freshest oysters. Now, this was a benefit to the captains of the oyster skiffs, making him extremely popular with those captains. Um, he also clinched this marketing by making sure he invited the oyster captains to. To his restaurant to eat for free.
0: This guy has it covered on all bases. I love it. all the I stuff
1: that it. people are doing now on the internet with buying influencers and having people uh, promote their product. Thomas Downing was doing that way back in the 1800s. Now, by 1835, the Downing Oyster House had expanded to two more buildings, and a catering company. They were the go-to catering company for New York City elite. If you were opening anything from a paper bag to a new steamliner, You wanted Downing Oyster House to cater your event. Now, one of the biggest events they catered to was something called the Boz Ball, which had about 3,000 attendees. And the Boz Ball was in honor of Charles Dickens. Yes, that Charles Dickens of a uh, Christmas carol was coming to New York. And back then, he was like a rock star. So people came out to see him. So when on, in honor of this, the Downing Oyster uh, House catered that event. And this was the menu. 50,000 oysters, 10,000 10, sandwiches, oh my gosh. 40 hams, 76 beef tongues, 50 rounds of beef, 50 jellied turkeys, 50 pairs of chickens, 25 <laughs> pairs of ducks, 2,000 mutton chops. And that was all before the desserts were brought out. My goodness,
0: who could eat on
1: that? That was an absolute feast Gosh. for 3000 hungry New Yorkers. And he was paid twenty two hundred dollars. Now, I know that doesn't sound like a lot today, but in today's money, that was the equivalent of seventy thousand
0: dollars. Wow. A black eye That's mm. amazing. I love it. I love this guy already.
1: Now, despite doing all that for Charles Dickens, he was a little bit shady about the Oyster House because he wanted to see the gritty side of New York. He wanted to see those gritty oyster dives. So he thought that Thomas Downing's place was a little bit too fancy for him. And I'm like, sir, no, who wants to be eating in some kind of dirty, funky basement? I'm going to Thomas Downing's place.
0: (laughs) So Dickens really wanted to see the shadier kind of places. He He wanted to see the,
1: the shady underbelly. And it's like, we don't do that
0: here. We don't do that. Yeah. So he was in the wrong spot. Downing was upscale. Okay. All
1: right. But one person who did not mind the fanciness of Thomas Downing's surroundings and loved oysters was none other than Queen Victoria of England herself. And I would take Queen Victoria's cosign over good old Chucky Dickens (laughs) any day. Now, the Queen loved Thomas Oyster so much that she sent him a gold chronometer watch. And I'm sure you're wondering how her Royal Highness of the, the United Kingdom and the British Royal Empire got a taste of downing Oyster House oysters all the way across the pond. Do well, tell. <laughs> do tell. Now, Thomas, he didn't stop with just having an oyster shop or oyster place that was fancier than the rest. He didn't stop with having a world-class Catering business, my man Thomas Downing had a quite successful international mail order and shipping business. He shipped large quantities of live, fresh, pickled, uh, fried oysters all over to Europe. And he also shipped vast quantities of fried and pickled oysters to the West Indies because the West Indies were a net importer of food because a majority of their land they used to grow sugarcane. So they weren't weren't growing other food and they didn't have things like that. So he imported most of their food. Now he shipped these orders in custom custom clay crocs that are stamped with his company label. If you ever find a pot that has the Tommy it's Thomas uh, Downing oyster house stamp label on it, that is worth a Ooh, lot wow. of money
0: these days. I love to go thrift shopping. So i <laughs> I have a new item. I'm going to keep my eyes open and peeled for
1: So at this point of the story, everything for Thomas Downing is coming up roses. He's making enough money to care for and educate his family. He was even able to bail out the New York Herald newspaper by advancing its founder, Gordon Bennett, a loan of just Mm $10,000. And all this took place. 27 years after the abolishment of slavery in New York. Because remember, on our last podcast, we talked about slavery was legal in New York. Mm -hmm. So this was only a few years. So after in 1827, is when New York um stopped having slavery, abolished slavery. So only a few years he was doing this a few years after that. He was able to bail out a newspaper with a simple loan Mm. of ten thousand dollars. But everything is
0: and that would be millions now.
1: Mm-hmm. But everything isn't perfect in the world of Thomas Downing. He's a man with some secrets. There was definitely something going on with him, especially in the basement of his restaurant. And if that secret got out it would ruin Thomas Downing and everything he worked for.
0: Oh boy, Courtney, secrets sometimes mean trouble. So let's take a break and then get back to find out what is in that basement. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get blocks of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry, and connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry. See you there. All righty now, we're back. And Courtney, you have some explaining to do. What's the secret in the downing basement?
1: Well, when we left off, we left Thomas, he was at the top of the world, living a literal New York City dream. He was one of the richest men in the city. He had changed how oyster bars and oyster dives were being viewed. He had expanded his business into catering and mail ordering. His oysters were being enjoyed from by everyone from the common man and family to the queen of England. And there's something all these people had in common.
0: They were all white. Except for Downing. Except, of for, Thomas. <laughs> so Except for Thomas. So all his fans were
1: white. But so. most of his fans, unless you were buying his oysters to go around the street, were all white. You see, Thomas Downing's Oyster House was exclusively an all white establishment, unless you worked there. And Thomas was absolutely fine with that fact as long as his patrons stayed out of the basement of the basement restaurant.
0: Mm. So what
1: was so big? What was the big deal? What was the secret? Now, there's not a harrowing tale. He's not Hannibal Lecter or anything down there. (laughs) And it wasn't an it that was in his basement. It was a who
0: or who? Oh my goodness.
1: Now, the Downing Oyster House wasn't just the best oyster house in the city. It was also one of the best stops on the Underground Railroad. That's right. While white patrons were eating upstairs, Thomas Downing was using his funds and his basement to funnel enslaved Africans to freedom. So that's what was hiding in his basement. Now, Thomas had, like I said, he had no problem spending white people's money on business ventures, but he also helped his community fight the evils of slavery in America. And he was also fighting for the education of black children in New York state. Now, education was very, very important to Thomas. If you remember, he received a quality tutored education. He received the same education as a future governor of Virginia at that time. And he wanted to make sure that his children and especially black children got a quality education past the eighth grade. He was a high proponent of high school and college education. Now, for decades, he supported what was called the African Free School, where his five children were educated. He was also a vestryman at the Free African Church of St. Philip, which was located on Center Street in Lower Manhattan. He was the founder of the All-Black Anti-Slavery Society in New York City. And in 1837, after New York had abolished slavery, he became the founding member of what was called the Committee of Thirteen. And that was an organization dedicated to protecting free Black people from being kidnapped and taken back to the South and in, uh, in, sold back into that slavery system.
0: He was busy. I mean, it sounds like uh, he was an entrepreneur, but an abolitionist on the sly.
1: Abolitionist, activist. He was a complete renaissance man. Now, in 1838, he sued the New York trolley system after a driver. Now, mind you, this man was very wealthy at this time. He was not some ragamuffin street urchin. But after a driver on the trolley system beat him up when he refused to get off the trolley. Now this was a be- this was the beginning of a 20 year fight to desegregate the tr- the trolleys and Downing's case was thrown out of court by an all white jury But his case was followed with a legal victory by abolitionist Elizabeth Jennings in 1855, who refused to leave her seat on the New York trolley system. And it was desegregated. And this happened 100 years before Claudette Colvin and Rosa Parks. We got to shout out both queens there. We don't want to leave out Claudette. But 100 years before Claudette and Rosa Parks helped launch the Montgomery bus boycott, which led to the desegregation of public transportation in 1956.
0: So once again, a man ahead of his time, setting the pace. Mm -hmm.
1: Now, if you're familiar with the musicals Paradise Square, even certain scenes in the movie Gangs of New York, Tom, there are scenes that talk about the race riots in New York during the Civil War. Now, Thomas survived those race riots, and they were terrifying uh, for all Blacks involved because Black people would be randomly lynched um, or picked up off the street and murdered in cold blood because they were being blamed for the slaughter and suffering of Union troops. So, a lot of people think that everybody in the North was cool with the Civil War and we're going to go liberate people. That was not the case. The mm-hmm. Black people. People were in danger in the North because they were to blame because people thought, well, if it wasn't for you or people who look like you, we wouldn't even be having this war.
0: Mm -mm -mm. So Thomas uh, managed to get past that and he wasn't uh, harmed. No one in his family either, right?
1: No, no one in his family. Now, Thomas lived an amazing life. And the crazy thing about it is that he was not recognized as a citizen of the United States except for only one day in his life, even though he was one of the most wealthy men in New York. And I know yeah, you're like, how what? What, 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 what does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, well, me, Thomas, me. Thomas Downing died on April 10th, 1866. Now, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 declared all male persons born in the United States to be citizens without distinction of race or color, pre- previous condition of slavery or involuntary slave uh, servitude. Now, President Johnson vetoed this legislation. He thought that the federal government shouldn't interfere. And he was just he's on my list. He's up mm. there with Rutherford B. Hayes. Mm. But on April 6th, the Senate voted to overturn that 33 to 15, to override that veto. And Congress followed suit with a vote of 122 to 41 to vote the act to become law on April 9, 1866. Thomas Downing died on April 10th. So for one day, the United oh. States government recognized this captain of industry, this wealthy entrepreneur who did all those things to add to America For one day of his life, the United States recognized him as a citizen.
0: And then he died. Wow. And then he
1: died the next day. Now, I think a quote made by Thomas's son, George Downing, who is just as extraordinary as his dad, he said his father of his father he was a man who never knew tire and that reminds me of my grandfather as well that he just never knew tire now in honor of thomas's passing on the day of his funeral the new york city chamber of commerce closed for the entire day
0: that is incredible I mean, that is amazing. A Black man recognized in that way and honored that way. What a remarkable man and a remarkable story. Oysters have taken on a new meaning for me, Courtney.
1: I have never had a fresh oyster. So because of this story, I am going to seek out some and try them in honor of Thomas Downing. So what's the status of Black-owned business today, and Anker? Are there any Black business empires being built right now?
0: Well, Courtney, nationally, as of the latest census data release, there were 3.12 million Black-owned businesses in the United States, generating $206 billion in annual revenue and supporting 3.56 million U.S. jobs.
1: Well, based on those numbers, the spirit of Ghana, Mali, the Songhai Empire, and even Thomas Downing himself is still alive and well in America.
0: In some respects, it is, Courtney. Though these businesses don't control trade routes and gold mines and oyster dives, there are quite a few that are lucrative and profitable. For example, um, Black Enterprise Magazine listed its top 100 Black businesses. They range for everything from technology and manufacturing to food services like Thomas Downing and the media. Now, these top 100 companies have demonstrated economic impact in America by producing more than $25 in revenues and employing more than 70,000 workers in just those 100 companies alone.
1: Wow, now that's quite an impact on the American economy. With statistics like these, the outlook for Black business is pretty good, right?
0: Yes and no, Courtney. There is a direct correlation between wealth, and business development, as we saw with Thomas Downey. Business outcomes in America, though, still reflect a racial wealth gap. Uh, and it's shaped again by racialized policies and including some of those that were created by the federal government.
1: I guess you're right in, Carol. At a January 17th, 2022 event marking the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said, from Reconstruction to Jim Crow to present day, our economy has never worked fairly for Black Americans or really any American of color.
0: Yep, Yellen was brutally honest. And her remarks were an acknowledgement that US policymakers have established racially tilted rules for the economy that prohibit intergenerational wealth transfers among Black Americans, among uh, many other harms, as we've talked about in our podcast.
1: So if there hasn't been a level playing field for Black businesses, what are some of the things that have been done to rectify the systemically racist policies and practices that have held Black businesses back, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic?
0: Well, one thing that was done in March uh, 2020 is that Congress passed the CARES Act to address the economic fallout of the pandemic. As part of that act, Congress authorized the Treasury Department to disperse up to six, uh, six $159 billion in forgivable loans to small businesses through the Paycheck Protection Program. Now, eligible businesses received loans to cover payroll and certain other expenses, including mortgage and rent and utilities. And these loans were forgivable if firms retain employees at their current level of compensation.
1: Well, and Carol, isn't it true that even though PPP loans were an important economic cushion, the program had had problems because it didn't target the firms with the greatest need, particularly in the Black community. One study estimated that only 23 to 34 percent of PPP dollars went directly to workers who may have lost their jobs. And sadly, most of that money went to business owners, shareholders, and the creditors and suppliers to firms that got the PPP money.
0: Well, sadly, yeah, that's true, Courtney. Folks are still decrying the unfair distribution of funds and uh, even at times some mismanagement. Management of this program but despite the fact this was well and this was a well-intentioned program that didn't quite accomplish its intended goals there were some bright spots that came out of the pandemic and it relates back to that business of empire building and so on and I think Thomas uh, Downing would be proud even though the pandemic disproportionately hurt pre-existing black firms it actually spurred the creation of new ones Uh, A recent Brookings report found there has been a surge in new online micro-businesses, which grew the fastest among groups hit the hardest by the uh, the pandemic's economic shock. Black owners account for 26% of all micro businesses that that number is up from 15% before the pandemic. So these uh, business owners are kind of like the Thomas Downings of this age. They're um, figuring out how to make do and do better, even though times are hard. Now, there's a recent paper from the National Bureau of Economic Research that found large upticks in new businesses between 2019 and 2020 in Black neighborhoods with moderate income levels. And the paper found a statistically significant correlation between upticks in new business registrations on both rounds of pandemic stimulus checks, with particularly high rates of business formation in Black neighborhoods. So basically, the pandemic Seem to have been uh, a good thing for Black business folks.
1: Well, it's sparking that entrepreneurial spirit that has come with us all the way from those empires that we talked about in the beginning of the show. So that's great news, Aunt Carol. So is there anything that can be done to support this upsurge of Black business growth?
0: Yes, there is, Courtney. There certainly is. First, the Commerce Department's Minority Business Development Agency, that should be expanded through regional offices to bring direct support and expertise to the field where it's needed most. So these folks that are out in the field that are creating these new businesses and these new jobs, uh, if the uh, Commerce Department's Minority Business Development Agency is out there close to them, it can give them some, um, some expertise and help to make sure they stay in business. Secondly. Uh, we know that the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act is going to send a lot of money to states, So some of that should be targeted for black businesses. And thirdly, A lot of people don't realize this, but municipal governments control large sums of capital, and that capital is in the form of pensions for public employee groups. Well, I would suggest that those public funds should be managed by people who look like the public. In other words, these funds should be managed by more Black fund managers. Put some money in their pocket for managing these big pensions. And then finally, Businesses and philanthropic groups that pledge billions of dollars to social justice justice efforts, they need to be held accountable to determine if their investments actually are having an impact in the communities that are most harmed by systemic racism. And, you know, basically, Courtney, if changes like these happen to keep those businesses in business, we might see quite a few new oyster kings coming around.
1: Well, that is amazing to hear to add more people to the legacy of Thomas Downing and many other Black business pioneers and starters in America. Well, that brings this episode to a close. But if you want to figure out what we're doing or where we are, you can always visit us at our website, www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry that brings today's episode to a close we hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question why are they so angry as always we hope you learn something so you can see it say it and confront it